It's time for a spiritual credit check. Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author, pastor, teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. In today's text out of Luke chapter 7, Pastor Charles will ask us what it really means to be devoted to Jesus. First, our devotion to Jesus is an act of worship. Our devotion is a demonstration of love. And our devotion to Jesus is a statement of faith. Today's message, a spiritual credit check. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., Father, in the name of Jesus, would you be our teacher now? Open our understanding that we may comprehend the Scriptures. Give us understanding, and we will obey your word and keep it with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Through the end of the chapter is our text for the day. I'm reading the text from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and therein the reading of God's word is this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. And anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to label the message today a spiritual 
credit check, a spiritual credit check. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 is a biblical episode of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. A Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. The Pharisees were the primary representatives of the Jewish religious establishment. They viewed Jesus as a rabbinical fraud with messianic ambitions. But this Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner, and Jesus accepted the invitation. Luke does not tell us the Pharisee's motives. He simply tells us that the Pharisee invited Jesus to eat with him, and Jesus accepted the invitation. Apparently, Luke did not know a temperamental Jesus who needs a prime-time special place or comfortable environment to operate in. Luke's Jesus was free to accept a dinner invitation from a Pharisee. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus is accused of being a borderline alcoholic who partied too much with sinful people. Now, Jesus responds to the charges by attending a dinner party hosted by an uptight Pharisee. This combustible situation is set ablaze by the presence and actions of a woman of ill repute who crashed the party to see Jesus. Here, by the resulting controversy, we see that this story is not about where Jesus was or why, but how he was treated once he was there. This Pharisee invited Jesus to a banquet. Once Jesus arrived, the Pharisee ignored him. But this woman of ill repute embarrassed herself with public displays of affection for Jesus. She embarrassed the hosting Pharisee, and she embarrassed the onlookers who saw this spectacle. But Jesus was not embarrassed. Jesus was honored by this woman's expression of devotion to him. He was, however, dishonored by the Pharisees' negligence and negative attitude toward the woman's devotion. The Lord's response to them both begs the question, are you like this inhospitable Pharisee or this grateful woman? This question matters because Your devotion to Jesus is a means of assurance that your sins have been forgiven by God. Let me repeat that sentence because it is the point of the text. Your devotion to Jesus is a means of assurance that your sins have been forgiven by God. You see, unforgiven sinners may respect 
Jesus, but they don't love him. They invite him home only to ignore him. But forgiven sinners treat Jesus with warm devotion, not chilly formality. Which one are you? This text calls on every one of us to take a spiritual credit check. What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? There are three answers in the text. Number one, devotion to Jesus is an act of worship. Devotion to Jesus is an act of worship. Verse 36 sets the scene. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Their dinner tables were the height of our coffee tables. Chairs were, were short, extended couches where they would recline. They would stretch out with their feet away from the table. One arm they would use to prop themselves up and the other arm they would use to eat. Likewise, you should note that these dinner parties were never private affairs. Hosts would open their homes so needy people could gather leftovers. And when a visiting rabbi was in town, all were welcome to come and hear him speak. That's the setting in the Pharisee's house. The drama begins in verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This unnamed woman's expressions of devotion teach us two fundamental facts about true worship, two marks of true worship. First, to worship is to offer yourself to Jesus. Get the scene again. As Jesus is reclining at the table, a woman stood over him weeping. Her tears were a combination of sorrow over her guilt and joy over her conversion. When she noticed that her flowing tears began to wet the feet of Jesus, she stooped at his feet, unloosed her hair, and began to wipe and wash his feet with the hair of her head, and then began to kiss his feet. This is a beautiful picture from 2,000 years away. It was a scandalous scene for the onlookers. First of all, women were allowed in the house, but not at the table. Definitely not this woman. Twice in the text we are told she was a sinner. That means she was a known prostitute or adulterer in the community. 
Religiously, it means she was to stay away from other people lest she make them ceremonially unclean as if her sin could contaminate you just by getting close. The, the, the expectation of the culture is that she would stay away from other people, but love drew her to the feet of Jesus. And when, when in the text, she lets down her hair, she is breaking another cultural taboo. You see, women in the ancient Near East, and for that matter today in the Middle East, never let their hair down in public. A woman could be divorced by letting her hair down in the presence of other men. But at the feet of Jesus, she let her hair down and began to wipe and wash his feet with her hair. No act of worship could be more degrading than the sins she had committed in the past. And inasmuch as she has now been forgiven she freely washes and wipes the feet of Jesus with her hair and then begins to kiss his feet. The other men she had dealt with in her past left her feeling used and dirty and unclean. Jesus had now made her pure and new and clean. So she, she kissed his feet passionately, offering herself to him in worship. And church, this is where real worship begins. Before God wants uplifted hands, joyful songs, sacrificial acts, he first wants you. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To worship them is to offer yourself to Jesus. Likewise, to worship is to offer your best to Jesus. Notice the end of verse 37 says that this woman showed up with an alabaster flask of ointment. That language is meant to tell us this is not common olive oil. In Mark 14, verses 3 through 9, there was a woman who broke open her alabaster flask of oil and poured it out on Jesus, and Judas complained that the ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Most likely, this alabaster flask of ointment was very expensive. And who knows what this woman had to do to afford it. But she brings it to the house. She bows at the feet of Jesus, and she breaks open her flask of ointment and pours it out on the feet of Jesus. That is, she offered her best to Jesus, and so should we. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus does not say that 
your treasure will follow your heart. The treasure is the dominant element in the service and in the statement. And your heart will inevitably become attached to where you place your treasure. Do you treasure Jesus? Here we are reminded that Jesus is worthy of your highest devotion and your deepest sacrifice. Jesus is worthy of the best that you can offer him. May the Lord help us to repent today of any selfish attitude that says, what's the least I can do for the Lord? May Psalm 116 verse 12 be our song. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward us? Isaac Watts said it well. If this whole realm of nature were mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, deserves my soul, my life, and my all. What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? The first answer of the text is that devotion to Jesus is an act of worship. Secondly, devotion to Jesus is a demonstration of of love. Up until this point of the text, there's been a lot of drama, but no one has actually said anything. Not Jesus, not the woman, not the Pharisee. The first recorded statement of the text is in verse 39, where interestingly, the Pharisee speaks to himself. If this man were a prophet, he said, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If he was a real prophet, he would have known this woman's past, and he wouldn't let her touch him. So, Simon questions Jesus' prophetic discernment. In the following verses, Jesus will pro prove his prophetic discernment by responding to Simon's unspoken thoughts. But before we get there, I want you to feel the tension of the text. Simon, the Pharisee, is thinking about this woman's sin. Jesus is thinking about Simon the Pharisee's sin. So he responds to what Simon is thinking. Look at verse 40. Jesus, listen to what Luke says, answering said to him, Simon, I, I need to say something to you. Simon says, say it, teacher, naively. And then Jesus tells a little micro parable in verses 41 and 42. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? This little parable was meant to teach three lessons to Simon and to you and to me. Don't miss them. Lesson number one, we owe a sin debt that we cannot pay. 
Jesus says a moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other owed him 50. On the surface, it seems like the 50 denarii debtor is in a much better position than the 500 denarii debtor. After all, the other guy owes five, ten times more than the other. But both are under an unpayable debt. A Roman denarius coin was what the common agricultural worker was paid for a day's labor. To earn 50 denarii was the equivalent of two months' pay. Both of these men were under a debt they could not pay. The difference in the amount is only academic. Listen, if you are broke, 50 might as well be 500. You can just tell the, you can tell the credit people, just keep adding to the list. I ain't got nothing to pay. Don't get stuck on the amounts. The point of the parable is in verse 42. They both cannot pay. There were no credit cards, no payment plans. There were no, um, there was no bankruptcy protection to help these men. They were both under a debt they could not pay. This is the spiritual condition of the woman and Simon and all mankind, including you and me. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus teaches us to pray, so forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's what sin is. Sin is an unpayable debt with mounting interest. We can never pay back what we owe because our sovereign creditor does not accept an installment plan. The divine standard is perfect righteousness. None of us have reached the standard of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet, we keep trying to repay God with the counterfeit currency of self-righteousness. But good works can't pay what you owe. Church attendance cannot pay what you owe. Sacrificial giving cannot pay what you owe. Moral behavior cannot pay what you owe. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. And to work for your salvation does not make you right with God. It only puts you deeper in debt because if God has to count merits, he's also got to count demerits. Romans chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 says, to the one who works, his wages does not count as a gift but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but simply trusts in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God saves guilty sinners who trust, not self-righteous sinners who work. We all 
owe a debt we cannot pay. That's the first lesson of the parable. The second lesson of the parable is this. Our sin debt has been canceled by Jesus Christ. Again, the point of the little parable is in the first line of verse 42, when they, both of them, could not pay. When they could not pay, the moneylender did not take their possessions as repayment or make them his slaves to work off the debt or take them to court to send them to jail. The Bible says when they could not pay, he, listen to this, canceled the debt of both. It was a gracious act. He gave these deadbeats a gift they did not deserve. And what a gift. He did not give them more time. He did not renegotiate the terms. He did not install a, play, a payment plan he just freely and completely canceled the debt. That's called grace. Now, let me be a little more theologically accurate. Let me, let me use theologically correct terms. That's called amazing grace. <laughs> Romans 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This was a gracious act. It was also a costly act. There's no way around it. By this gracious act, this moneylender was in the red 550 denarii. He did not cancel the debt because he could later write it off on his taxes and avoid suffering loss. It was free for the debtors, but costly for the moneylender. Lord, help me preach. Here's what, here's what you need to get. Do not take the grace of God for granted. Don't, don't treat grace like it's a little thing. Divine forgiveness is free for us, but it was costly to God. It cost God his only begotten son, and it cost his son his death at the cross. Some say... If God is so gracious, why can he not just declare us forgiven? To ask that question means you do not understand the offensive nature, crushing weight, and incalculable debt your sin is before God. Sin is a debt before a holy God. Divine justice demands payment. We cannot pay what we owe. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. What God demands, he provides. 
Listen to how Paul explains what happens at the cross in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When the Romans crucified someone, they placed the sentence of condemnation above their head on the cross. Pilate, out of frustration, wrote, and they placed over Jesus' head in three different languages, King of the Jews. But what Paul is saying here is not only did Pilate nail something to the cross, so did God. Pilate put the sentence of Jesus. He claimed that he could dare be a king who wasn't named Caesar. But God nailed something up there. And it it wasn't about Jesus. It was about you and me. He nailed our debt list to the cross. Y'all not listening to me here. And Jesus died at the cross under the burden of our guilt as if he had committed all of our sins. And by the death of the cross, God wrote, he ripped up and wiped away the record of guilt that was against us and gave us another chance. I can hear the Savior say, that strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Are you still with me? It's a little parable, but it's got another lesson. The first lesson is we owe a debt of sin that we cannot pay. Secondly, our sin debt is canceled through Jesus Christ. Here's the third lesson. It's a big one. It's the point of the parable. Your love for Jesus is the receipt that proves your sins have been forgiven. Can I say that again? Your love for Jesus is the receipt that proves your sin has been forgiven. After the parable at the end of verse 42, Jesus asked this question, now, which of the debtors, the 500 or 50 guy, will love him more? Simon reluctantly answers. Listen to how he answers. The one, I suppose, if 
for whom he canceled the larger debt. He was hesitant to answer, but the logic was unavoidable. The one who has been forgiven a greater debt will inevitably be more grateful than the one who has been forgiven a smaller debt. That's basic logic. The point is clear. There's nothing deep about this. Simon is reluctant to answer because at this point he has figured out this is about him. <laughs> you know, Jesus is deep, but Simon's saying, you ain't that deep. He's, he's talking about Simon. He says, Simon, you have rightly judged the evidence that your sin has been forgiven is love for Jesus. And if you got less love than others, it don't mean you better or cooler or smarter. It's because you haven't done a credit check to see how big your debt is. So Jesus says, let me help you out. Jesus says, let me help you out. The point is that if you have been forgiven much, you will love much. And this presents the question of the text to us, does it not? Again, are you like this inhospitable Pharisee or this grateful woman? Let me answer. Let me testify. Uh, let me confess. I'm both. On one hand, like the woman, I am fully aware of my desperate need for amazing grace. On the other hand, I admit that I am also a recovering Pharisee who tends to act as if my sins are forgiven because my debt is not as great as somebody else's. Let me try it another way. I'm, I spend too much time looking out the window when I should be looking in the mirror. Y'all ain't listening to me here. And if I would just audit my own account, I wouldn't have time to check anybody else's credit. I wish I had a praying church. If I just recognize how great my debt is and how much I have been forgiven, I don't have time to talk about anybody else's sin. I just need to love on the one who paid my debt. That's the sign that your sins have been forgiven. Francis Schaeffer wrote here, it is like a wife who does not sleep around with anyone else, but at the same time, she does not show love to her husband. Is this sufficient in the relationship of marriage, he asked? No, a thousand times no. But so it is with the Christian 
who acts and speaks with doctrinal faithfulness but doesn't display love to the divine bridegroom. What God wants is not just doctrinal faithfulness. He wants love day and night, not just in theory, but in practice. The question is, do you love Jesus? You nod and don't nod too fast. Because the question is not, do you go to church? Because you can go to church and not love Jesus. Do you serve in ministry? Yes, you can serve in ministry and not love Jesus. The question is not, do you pay your tithe? You can pay tithes and not love Jesus. The question is, do you love Jesus? The mark of a true Christian is love for Jesus. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, yet you love him. And though you do not see him now, Yet you believe in him and are filled with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? Number one, devotion to Jesus is an act of worship. Number two, devotion to Jesus is a demonstration of love. Thirdly, devotion to Jesus is a statement of faith. The rest of the text, verses 46 through 50, is Jesus' response to the woman and the Pharisee. Jesus condemns the ungrateful Pharisee and commends the grateful woman. And here we see that devotion to Jesus is a statement of faith. It's a proclamation of faith. Notice, first of all, that Jesus rebukes the ungrateful sinner. Look at the language of verse 44. It's pretty interesting. It's a packed house. And Luke says, Jesus turned to the woman and spoke to Simon. It's as if he turned his back on Simon, looked at the woman, and then asked, Do you see this woman? drawing all attention to her. Answer, no. Simon did not see this woman. More specifically, he saw her from the wrong perspective. To her, all she was was a sinner, and that was all she would ever be. But that's not how Jesus saw her. Listen, friends, that's not how Jesus sees you. The Pharisee only saw the guilt of her past. Jesus saw the change in her heart evidenced in and through her devotion to him. And so he wants, he wants Simon to see what he saw. Look at verse 44 again. He says, you didn't see her? Let me show you what just happened. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but 
She has anointed my feet with ointment, not oil. These sins of omission are not radical acts of devotion. This is basic hospitality any guest would expect. In the ancient world, the basic thing a host would do for guests is wash their feet, kiss their cheek, and anoint their head. It's like taking someone's coat and asking them, do you want something to drink? Watch what happens here. The issue is not that the Pharisee did not do more for Jesus than he did for everyone else in the house. The issue is that the Pharisee did not do as much for Jesus as he would have done for anybody in the house. Jesus is saying, you are criticizing this woman for being out on a limb. You haven't even made it up the tree. You you complaining because she went too far? You haven't even done for me the least you could do. Do you get it? Because he's not talking about Simon. He's talking about you and me. Let me try to translate. You have your TV shows. And you won't miss your TV shows. If you can't be there, you will tape your TV shows. You go on social media and say, don't call me right now because I I have my TV show. You you will block out time if you miss to catch the recorded TV show. But you can go days without reading your Bible or spending time with God in prayer. Let, Let me try it again. Let me try it again. You come to church and act like it's just too much to clap your hands and sing praise to God. But you can go to a show and clap and sing for an entertainer who hadn't done anything for you but take your money for the show. No disrespect. I've I've been in this city for two thousand since two thousand and eight. As far as I know, I may be wrong. The Jaguars have not had a winning season (laughs) since I've been in town. No, no disrespect. I mean, as far as I know. But there are those of you who'll miss church for the game. You show up in your gear because you headed for the game. You wear your hat. You got your bumper sticker. You ain't ashamed for everybody to know you support a losing team, but you've worked on the same job for 20 years, and they still don't know you love Jesus. Y'all not hearing me here. He is saying, if you know your sins have been forgiven, You ought not be ashamed to love on the one who paid your debt. Therefore, I tell you, verse 47, 
Listen, verse 47. Look at it. Because this is you and me. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Good God Almighty. That's my testimony. You want to put something good on my gravestone? Put that. His sins, which were many, are forgiven. That's why she loves so much. She's been forgiven. Listen, Shiloh, worship won't get real until you can say that. My sins were many. You, you just, you know, worship ain't real just because you got a car or you kept got a job or he healed a sickness. People that don't love Jesus get a new house and get a new car and circumstances get better. Real Christian worship focuses on the fact that my sins were many, but by the grace of God, I have been forgiven. Oprah can give a new car, only Jesus can give forgiveness. The devil can give a new job, but only Jesus can give forgiveness. But, but verse 47 says, the one who's forgiven little loves little. He's not saying that you got to have scandalous sin to love deeply. Or that people with respectable sin can't love passionately. Don't, don't let the language confuse you. Neither one could pay the debt. He's saying, if you think you only got little sin and only need little forgiveness, you reading somebody else's credit report. No, no matter how bad your credit is, you can find somebody else whose credit is worse than yours. The problem is, they aren't the standard. Y'all not listening to me here. That, that, that's why it doesn't pay to compare your sin to other people's sin. This is why you ain't got any business walking around holding a grudge. This is why you can't look down on other people. This is why you can't give up on anybody. Because if God can forgive you, he can forgive anybody. All of us. Got big sin. Don't compare to other people. That ain't the standard. I love my pastor. My, I call him dad. I love my pastor. And I would do anything for my pastor. I can say that publicly. I believe you ain't a man unless you learn how to submit to another man. I, I love my pastor. But if he chuck away his faith and walk away from Jesus. I ain't following him. Bless you, Dad. I love you, but he ain't the standard. Y'all not listening to me here. You keep trying to find the perfect church where ain't nobody messing up. But that, that ain't the real issue. All of us are messed up. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Everybody in here is sick with something. But thanks be to God, there's a healer whose name is Jesus. Yeah. 
John Owen said it well, that the one that has slight, slight thoughts about sin can never have great thoughts about God. He so condemns then the ungrateful sinner, but then he blesses the grateful sinner. Jesus ends the text by finally saying something to the woman. Everybody been talking about her. Now somebody finally says something to her. And what Jesus says gives her assurance for her past and her future. He gives assurance for her past in verse 48. Let me be clear about something. The woman's sins were forgiven before she got there. The fact that her sins were forgiven was why she showed up. The reason why she took her expensive oil and broke it open on Jesus was because her sins were forgiven. The grammar of verse 47 presents her sins forgiveness as a pre-existent and completed act. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But now Jesus wants her to have assurance of what's already taken place. God does not only want you to be saved, he wants you to know you have eternal life. And so he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. This is the assurance Jesus gives to everyone who believes that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that he was buried and rose from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And friend, if you're here today, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or how long you've been doing it. If you run to the cross, turn yourself in, throw yourself on the mercy of God, trust the blood and righteousness of Christ, you can be saved today. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 declares that if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you trust Jesus today, your sins can be forgiven. But then he says something about her future. Verse 50, and I need to quit. Your faith has saved you go in peace. Before the the story ends, Jesus wants to make it clear that her tears didn't save her. Her unloosed hair didn't save her. Her ointment didn't save her, as much as it cost. Her love, her worship, her devotion didn't save her. Faith saved her. Let me try it another way, church. You're not saved by what you do for the Lord. You are saved by trusting what the Lord has done for you. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. Today, if you want to be saved, friend, you need to close up your shop and get out of the Savior business once and for all. 
and trust what, what God has done for you through the bloody cross and empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives her assurance for the past, but will you see, he gives her assurance for the future. Go in peace. Go in peace. This is not just saying, so long, have a good day. This command to go in peace is even more remarkable than the declaration that your faith has saved you. He's already dealt with her past, and now he gives a word for her future, even if they never meet on earth again. Go in peace. This is what he's saying to the woman. When you left the house today, things were a mess. Now that you are saved, there's no guarantee that things will change. Most likely, when you get back home, things will still be a mess. But you can go to the same place a new way. Go in peace. Jesus doesn't say, now that I've saved you, you can live in health and wealth and success. You still may be broke, sick and sad, but you can go in peace. Y'all not listening to me here. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we now have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have access by grace into this, by faith into this grace wherein we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. And he goes on to say, but not only that, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Lord have mercy. And love will never disappoint you because the love of God is poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to you. You know what he's saying? If your sins have been forgiven, it doesn't matter what the future holds, you can go in peace. My children and I are movie buffs. When we can't go catch a movie over the years, we stopped at the store and picked up a movie to take home. And when they were young, I remember there times we would head out the door, they're carrying the bag, and as they're stepping out the store, the alarm goes off. I keep walking. They freak out. Because the alarm, I tell them, keep coming. But the al- no, keep coming. I, I, I tell them to keep walking, don't worry about the alarm, because I have in my hand the receipt for what they got in the bag. If your sins have been paid by Calvary, it, it don't matter what alarm go off in your life, you just keep on going in peace. The burden may be heaven. 
but go in peace. They still may be talking about what you did in the past, but go in peace. There may be trouble on every side, but go in peace. There was a time I know when in the book of heaven, an old account was standing of sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below, but I took it to the keeper and I settled it long ago. The old account was big and growing every day because I was always sinning and never tried to pay it. But when I looked ahead and saw such pain and woe, I said that I would settle and I settled it long ago. So now when at the judgment bar, I stand before the king and he, his book will open. He will not find a thing. And then will my heart be glad while tears of joy will flow because I took it to the keeper and I settled it long ago. Long ago, I settled it all. Down on my knees, I settled it all. And my record is clean today because my sin, he washed away. And my account was settled long ago. If that's your testimony, give him praise. I wish I could go further. But if you ain't found something to shout about yet, I ain't got nothing for you. If you know your assault was settled, give him praise. Hey, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah to the Lamb. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles, Jr., If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.